If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty Cake. Accept no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up? Oh, still trying to figure out who I'm going to dress up as for Halloween, Leslie. How about you? Um, Can we just go dressed as Peak TV or the Streaming Uh, Wars? I think the Streaming Wars would be a good, like, joint costume. We we can definitely do next week's podcast entirely in contact in costume as the streaming wars. I have no idea what that means, Leslie. You're gonna have to lay out a full costume for me. I'm gonna wrap, I'm gonna print out some of those old Netflix red envelopes and and hold a sword, and then huh. you can come dressed in green like on Hulu or or maybe just wearing a bunch of Amazon different Amazon boxes. I don't know. These are bad ideas. This is this is really not going to be worth it since no one's going to hand us candy anyway. So uh, yeah. so let, let's let's get to some headlines, Leslie. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's been a busy week on the new series front. The Good Wife creators Robert and Michelle King are prepping a pandemic drama for Spectrum with Audra McDonald and Taylor Schilling set to star over at Netflix. Kristen Bell will top line a comedic thriller called The Woman in the House at HBO. Jake Gyllenhaal will star in limited series The Sun, as the premium cable network is also reteaming with enlightened creator Mike White for a star-studded limited series called The White Lotus. Meanwhile, Willow will return for a new take at Disney Plus with original star Warwick Davis set to reprise his role. Goodness gracious, a Willow TV series and Mike White's return to HBO. That is a lot of big news. And if anyone hasn't watched Enlightened, seriously, people watch Enlightened. Okay, Uh, okay, I get it. I need to watch Enlightened. It's only two seasons and it's only a half hour per episode. Come on, really easy, really great show. And I bet you it plays even better in our our strange pandemic-fied world. Anyway, in casting news, Dominic West will play Prince Charles in the fifth and sixth season of The Crown at Netflix. And Kate Hudson has joined the second season of Apple TV Plus's Truth Be Told. You can check out our interview with Nichelle Tramble Spellman that preceded the first season of that show. On the development front, Flashdance and Smokey and the Bandit are the latest big screen features to get the TV reboot treatment with new takes in the works at streamer Paramount Plus and Universal Cable Productions, respectively. Nisi Nash will host a syndicated daytime talk show for CBS Distribution with James Corden attached to produce. In renewal news, CBS All Access has picked up Star Trek Discovery for a fourth season. Archer has been renewed for a 12th at FXX. The Vow has been renewed for a second run at HBO. And TBS has picked up Miracle Workers for a third season with new showrunners attached. Which is odd because I feel like Simon Rich has a lot to do with what I most enjoyed about the first two seasons of that show, but still not as odd as The Vow getting a second season. Seriously, folks, why? Meanwhile, in shows that actually were canceled news, the space drama Away, starring Hilary Swank and Josh Charles, has been axed after one season at Netflix. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, Dan, you were right. It really it was called Quibi. 
Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman's short form mobile streaming service, Quibi, a.k.a. Quick Bytes, is officially shutting down. So quibye, quibye. In an open letter to investors, employees and partners, the duo said their two billion dollar venture imploded six months after launching during a pandemic, quote, likely for one of two reasons, because the idea itself wasn't strong enough to justify a standalone streaming service or because of timing. End quote. The duo said they're working on in the coming months, finding buyers for the roster of programming, which, yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a little difficult when you film an entire season of TV in an hour. Quibi previously tried to find a buyer. The platform was shopped to multiple services. Apple, there there was Apple passed on it. Uh, There were just no takers and hence Quibi. So, Dan, I mean, I'd like to say the writing was on the wall for this, but it really was in the name. There were a lot of things here that were wrong. And we talked a lot about Quibi before it actually launched. And one thing that I kept saying over and over again was that from my perspective as a TV viewer, it had no connection to the way I watched TV, but that there was a possibility that Jeffrey Katzenberg knew something I didn't know. Uh, I, I would say that probably this does show not that Jeffrey Katzenberg doesn't know things that I don't know because he knows millions of things I don't know because he's a smart man, but that probably not such a great idea. But I I think if you look at it, there are so many reasons why this went wrong. And it's not just the likely two reasons that you just read, that the idea itself wasn't strong enough to justify a standalone streaming service and their timing. Because let's let's be real. It is not their fault that they premiered during a pandemic that completely and totally submarined, sabotaged, torpedoed their entire purpose for existing. Yeah, I mean, this was a platform that was built to be consumed by people on the go, right? You're going to watch an entire, you know, episode, a 10 minute installment when you're, you know, sitting at the dentist's office waiting to, to be called in for your teeth cleaning, right? Or you're, you know, on the subway. So, yeah, and people are just, when people are stuck at home during during a pandemic, they don't need quick bites. They need things to binge. Yeah, there there was no question that the entire MO of the service ceased to be a thing that people were there for because of the pandemic. Now, whether it would have succeeded if they had rescheduled it and whatever, if it had been a different time, I mean, obviously, we'll never know. And that will be something that will haunt them forever. You know, so they had this they had this premiere date in April. They had spent millions and millions of advertising dollars on making sure that people had some awareness of what it was. I I would say that the precedent suggests that people did not, in fact, well enough know what it was. And that's neither here nor there. You know, could they have said at the start of April, this is not the right time for us to be launching a new service? We feel bad about the money we've spent, but better to not launch and look like a punchline. Uh, Yes, of course they could have. And then even more than that, beyond that, there were all of the little unforced errors that they made in terms of how to handle what was the new situation. So there was a long time, even if it was only a couple weeks, it felt like a long time where you couldn't watch Quibi programming on things that weren't your phone. And somebody at a certain point in March should have been able to say, yes, we need there to be a TV laptop app for this. There has to be a way for people to watch it the way that people are actually living at this moment. And they didn't do that. But 
more than that, ultimately, really more than anything, none of the programming was good enough. None of the programming was sticky enough. If you look at it, there were some things that some people found interesting. And there was the one show that actually won a couple Emmys. So they will always have those two Emmys that Quibi won. But there was still nothing that actually hit the zeitgeist in a serious way. There was nothing that caused anyone to say, I need to pay for this. And then the actual things that were supposed to sustain the service. And that was not the high price programming. It was the kind of the daily news updates, all of the partnerships they made with media platforms where there were going to be the here. I'm going to get my five minutes of sports news a day on Quibi. I'm going to get my five minutes of news here. Those were the things that the service was supposed to be all about, because that was the thing that people were going to listen to and watch on the subway between meetings, whatever, that was going to kind of smooth out the gap between uh, between the original programming things that maybe people would care about or maybe they didn't. I never heard a single person in six months say that they used the daily programming off of, of Quibi. I, I can't even say with certainty that it even existed. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. But those are the things where I think they had the numbers that told them that there was nothing that they could do to save themselves. I think that more than anything is where they looked and said, we are not getting the traction we need. We we can't do this if none of those things are working. I don't know. It's it, it it's too bad. I feel bad for all of the people who put the effort into this who seemed connected to the media landscape. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman did not seem connected to what the media landscape was. They gave all sorts of strange interviews where they talked about how they don't really watch TV and they don't really care about it. And they gave no real indication that they were in any way more connected to the what the young people are doing with their content than, say, old random TV critics at The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah, it, this this was just a disaster. And it's too bad that this is going to, you know, this this will for the foreseeable future be the go to punchline, whether, you know, it's the the water world, Howard the Duck, whatever this this is going to be a, a whipping boy punchline for the foreseeable future in the digital space, because this is a a big, big failure. And a lot of people went into this with a lot of good intentions. And I think a lot of the things that they tried to do on this service, someday somebody will have success with. I, I don't think this was the right way to do it. Clearly it wasn't. It failed. But a lot of the things that Quibi tried to do, I guarantee you, in five years will be the norm. And Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg will be like, yeah, we were ahead of the curve. And I think in some respects they were. That doesn't make what they actually did less of a disaster. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like when Kevin Riley came out on stage at TCA and with a tombstone slide that said RIP pilot season. And then all of a sudden, look like an idiot. And now a few years later, everyone's going straight to series and or finding different ways to do that, where you avoid spending millions of dollars on shows that will never see the light of day. And he looks like a genius. Um, does he look yeah, like a genius just, or does he look no, like someone who smart. had <laughs> he looked and I think he looks like someone who did have a sense of what the future looked like, just not the exact sense of what the future looked like. And I think that Meg Whitman and and Jeffrey Katzenberg will ultimately look like that. I think they will have some degree of prescience, but that will not make what they right. did on this particular service look. Yeah. Being connected, correct. being connected to a two billion dollar failure, it will stick around for a while. For sure. <sighs> 
Yeah. Well, anyway, we 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 really hardly knew you, Quibi, um, and probably Wait, Dan, you pronounced it wrong. <laughs> I've I've gone back and forth. It's it's what I like to do. It's a, a little bit like the way Joe Biden goes back and forth between Kamala and Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, yes, I know better. I know it's Quibi, but sometimes no, I just you said Quibi. I'm saying it. It, it, it <laughs> wait. Now I'm getting confused. Is it? No, I'm just. I, it, I'm calling it quits. It's literally just called quits. With like like Katzenberg and Whitman did. So, all right. Well, with that out of the way, let's go to our next topic. What do you say, Dan? Number two. Up next, CBS All Access is the latest to make a major executive change as the industry's massive game of musical chairs continues. So with the streaming service set to be rebranded as Paramount Plus next year, Viacom CBS Digital CEO Mark Debevoise or Debevoise uh, is out and Pluto TV CEO Tom Ryan has been tapped to lead the newly combined group Viacom CBS streaming. So what does this mean and how is this going to excite the kids, Leslie? Well, I think it's really going to excite the kids, as you say, Dan, because Paramount TV Plus is going to be a bigger and broader service and will likely have more content from across the Viacom CBS portfolio included on the platform. So but what it means from the executive point of view is it dissolves the CBS Digital Group that previously oversaw CBS All Access, which Mark helped to launch. And I'm going to call him Mark because I haven't a clue how to pronounce his last name. Um, it also puts the entire streaming organization under an executive who joined Viacom CBS last year when the conglomerate acquired ad-supported streamer Pluto TV. So the restructure also puts in place executives that came in with Viacom as part of the company's re-merger with CBS. And it really just marks the latest consolidation of, of as all these media behemoths look to streamline their organizations while also prioritizing streaming. So basically, as we've been not uh, noticing, so basically, as we've been talking about these last you know few months, the pandemic has really expedited this process of putting streaming first because, yeah, that's where everyone is watching their content right now. So the moves are all part of a larger effort to broaden out Paramount Plus and have the streamer represent top brands from the Viacom CBS portfolio, including MTV, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, BET, and, and so many more. As they're what they're trying to do is, is take CBS All Access from being a home where you watch episodes of CBS shows that you may have missed or Big Brother After Dark or Star Trek. And basically what they're trying to do is, is make Paramount Plus more in line where it represents everything from from their entire portfolio. That's the same thing that that Disney has done with Disney Plus and Hulu, where you've got all of the company's best brands in this case or in Disney's case under two roofs. Disney Plus has Star Wars and Marvel and Nat Geo and and Hulu has more uh, more adult content where you've got FX on Hulu Fair and, and next day episodes of ABC content. So the same is going to be true here for Paramount Plus. So it's basically doing what CBS All Access didn't do because they weren't remerged with Viacom. So this merger helped them expand this platform. So before you had CBS All Access, which was one separate platform, then you had Showtime had its, had its own over-the-top platform, and BET Plus still exists, right? They still have their own platform. And now you're eventually going to combine it all now that you've brought in Viacom, where you've got all these big brands, Comedy Central, MTV, et cetera, and you're going to supersize it. So this is think of this as the way that Disney and Fox 
combined, right? When Disney bought Fox with all those assets and that came with it. This is kind of the same idea. And now you're seeing that all represented in one streaming platform. And it wouldn't be a TV's top five podcast if we didn't at least briefly touch on the ongoing situation at Warner Brothers TV Group. We've kind of hinted about rumors, reports, increasingly official things. But uh, this week it was finally made official that Peter Roth would be stepping down at Warner Brothers TV Group and that former ABC and Netflix exec Channing Dungey would be stepping up and taking over for him. What was actually announced this week and where does that change or progress the story from when we last discussed it? Well, as we kind of noted last week, yes, Roth is stepping down in early 2021. Dungy, who was a, um, a VP originals at Netflix and worked with people like Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris and the Obamas, she is now going to take over as chairman of the Warner Brothers TV group after Roth steps down in early 2021. Her hiring represents the same thing from what I'm hearing from multiple sources. It signals the studio's intention to be a leading supplier to streaming service HBO Max. So everything is all about streaming. If you're if you're not sure why something is happening, it's either about money or streaming. Or if it's about streaming, it is about money. It's the same thing. So it, all roads point back to the same one. And Dungy has a reputation for building up internal teams. You know, while at ABC, she turned she helped turn Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris into mega producers. She was hired at, at, um, at Netflix to do the same thing, to build up their roster of internal overall deals and content that they owned. And now she's going from being from being a buyer to being a seller, working at, you know, running a studio. So the main thing that she's going to be asked to do is to populate HBO Max and, and use the power of the studio to build up the company's biggest priority, and that's HBO Max. Stay tuned for more information, because surely there will be. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see what happens next uh, at Paramount Plus, because it feels like we're only getting to, you know, we're only at the be very, very beginning of that team really being built. So number three. Up next, the Hollywood Reporter's annual top showrunners issue is out this week and features a list of the 50 most powerful in the industry, more than half of whom I should note have we've been lucky enough to interview as guests on our show. The cover features the first interview with Shonda Rhimes since she decamped her longtime home at ABC Studios and created a sea change in the industry with a massive nine-figure overall deal at Netflix. Joining us this week to discuss her cover story is executive TV editor and friend of the five, Lacey Rose. Lacey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So I want to start with, well, how your story started, why Shonda left ABC for Netflix and the the incident that triggered it. It was just just jaw dropping when I read it. So I want to hear you you tell it in your words and what it, what your response was when when you heard it from her. I think jaw dropping is is uh, is something I've used to describe my response as well. Um, yeah, no, I, I think what had happened from, you know, as, as I have heard and reported it was you know, this is a woman who was coming sort of dangerously close to her breaking point. She had been at Disney for or ABC uh, for 15 years. She had delivered, you know, <laughs> two billion plus for Disney and, and obviously made plenty for herself Had delivered uh, many, many shows, many hit shows, a night of programming uh, and was growing sort of creatively restless, looking around at what was happening, you know, on, on Netflix and elsewhere. People making shows for double the budget for, you know, 
half as, as many episodes, uh, shows like The Crown and, and, you know, drooling, rightfully so. Um, I believe she said something along the lines of, you know, I felt like I was dying. I was pushing the same ball up the same hill for for far too long. Her deal making was was had dragged out by folks who are no longer at ABC. And then there was this breaking point, this last straw, which was an incident in which she had had a, a, a Disney a pass to Disneyland as part of her deal. She had one and her nanny had one. Uh, she had asked for a, a an additional one because Disney passes are not interchangeable uh, for her sister to be able to take her older daughter to the theme park while her nanny took the younger one. It was there was a lot of hemming and hawing. There's a lot of sort of bureaucracy at at Disney. Ultimately, they gave her the pass, uh, the you know the the third pass, and then her sister with her older daughter and a friend and her nanny with her younger daughters went to the park. One of the two passes didn't work. There was some phone calls back and forth. She lobbed a call to an executive, the executive to say, you know, what happened? I thought I could get this extra pass. Uh, the executive on the other end of the line says, don't you have enough? At which point Shonda said, thank you. Check. Uh, <laughs> hangs up the phone, calls her lawyer and says, get me out of the deal. Now, to be clear, she was already, this was a last draw. This was not the thing um, on its own that had her leave, but it was the thing that said, find a way to get me out of this place or I will find new representatives. And that was it. And she'd had a number of busted pilots and things that didn't go or and a lot of one and dones on ABC. And, and it was basically they were, you know, had resorted to another spinoff of Grey's Anatomy, not resorted to a, Grey's Anatomy is a monster hit, but yeah, I mean, the frustration was there. The track record, you know, after Scandal wasn't. It was, you know, as as she described it, it was a lot of battles at a place where she was very successful. And sometimes it was they were pushing and she was pushing back. Sometimes it was it was the other way around. Um, there were battles over there was battles over budget. Often there was battles over content. There was, you know, there was a battle over uh, or real frustration. She and, and her stars of. Uh, of her shows, Viola, Ellen Pompeo, and Kerry Washington doing doing an ad for for Hillary Clinton uh, that did not go over well within uh, the, the Walt Disney Company. So there were battles. There was definitely the the ground had been laid for for this, but this was indeed the last straw. One of my favorite things in the article is the. Simmering competitiveness uh, between Shonda and Ryan Murphy about who really and truly is the highest paid showrunner in the industry. Talk a bit about what you think that title means to Shonda and why it's been important for her to stress lately that it's really her. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because she will tell you it is that it, it is not so much about the you know, being able to say I am the highest paid showrunner and, and what you'll hear is, is her sort of freaking out about even talking about money and, and you know, her, her lawyer having to convince her like you really are. And, and, and you know, she's and all that. What, what she will tell you is that it is about being able to sort of own your power. And she looked around and, you know, when she made the initial speech in this declaration, it was during the Kavanaugh hearings or shortly thereafter, I should say. And she was she was looking around and she had seen, you know, Ryan sign his deal. And then all of a sudden he did a cover with me. Um, 
And it was it was about, <laughs> you know, it was about the deal and the money and the celebrating it. And, and in her mind, it was about sort of owning your shit. Excuse my language, but that, that was her language. And Ellen Pompeo had also done a cover story uh, with, with THR, with me, um, where she also owned her shit. Uh, and and she sort of looked at all of it and said, why can't I do that? Why am I struggling to do that? And why, as a woman, do I feel like I shouldn't do that? And there she was. And it was, you know, in, in the wake of, of what was happening in the world, in the wake of having all of these times up meetings uh, where, where, you know, she was sitting around at a lot of meetings with a lot of women trying to sort of empower them to do just that and recognizing she wasn't doing it herself. So that's, I think, what that's about. In terms of what, it is, what is it between the sort of competitiveness between Ryan and Shonda, uh, look, I don't think you get to where either of those people uh, have gotten without being hugely competitive people. And and she does in the interview, she is very complimentary to Ryan and how quickly he hit he and how quickly he hit the ground running with his Netflix deal and all of that. But you, as you mentioned, have done multiple cover stories with Ryan. Do you anticipate that when you next get on the phone with him, he's going to want to immediately clarify with you why he's actually still the uh, the highest paid showrunner or is this <laughs> going to end at a certain point? <laughs> and where does Greg Berlanti factor into all of this? <laughs> I suspect this will end if if not um, only because of <laughs> publicists will get involved and say that this will need to end uh, here. But but again, I, I, I actually don't believe from Shonda's perspective, it was so much about the the dollar figure as much as it was about sort of owning it and and trying to understand why she couldn't do why she was so uncomfortable owning it. But yes, it is. It is definitely uh, entertaining to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So Sean, it's been it's been now a few years since Shonda signed her Netflix deal, and Ryan obviously hit the ground running. He had a couple of shows at, at Netflix that were um, holdovers from his time with Twentieth TV. Obviously, he's already launched his first Netflix original, but for in three years, Shonda's first show still hasn't debuted, and that's coming now. Um, per your story. Bridgerton is coming out on Christmas Day. So what has been what, what you know, obviously she's got built up an impressive uh, an impressive slate. We've see, seen the, the first announcement had eight projects in it, two of which you reported are no longer going forward. There's a couple others that she's added since then. But what has she said about these past three years and the adjustment from going from her longtime home at ABC 15 years to Netflix? It's like culture shock, I'd imagine. I think that's, I mean, and those are, that's exactly how, how she described it. And I, and I don't know that she was necessarily anticipating just how different the world at Netflix is, I, you know, from every piece of, of the process um, and, and how programming is thought about is, is different. And, and again, this is a woman who had spent her entire television career at one place. Uh, she got there and yeah, she, you know, I, I think she described it as, and I couldn't wait to go to Spain. And then I got to Spain and realized I don't speak Spanish. So I, I think there really was a, you know, I initially said, well, you know, was it a year of this show? It was well over a year where she was just trying to figure out, you know, what, how to find her way, what, what worked here, how, how she was supposed to um, think about stories and, and all of that. I mean, it, she didn't even find that the first show, which is hers, is, is inventing Anna about Anna Delby, the, the con artist, 
she didn't even I mean, that story itself, it's an adaptation of a New York magazine story. That story didn't come out until May of 2018, which was almost a year after she had signed her deal. So it took her a very long time to figure out how to do this and how to do it there. Uh, I, I think she has since very much sort of figured it out. Um, but she she acknowledges that the fact that she didn't have as she said, quote, 50 shows by now, uh, caused a great deal of anxiety for her. And, and you know, she is, as she said, used to feeling like this sort of perfect storytelling machine, and suddenly she, she wasn't. And looking over at what Ryan Murphy was doing, now you can argue those were successful or not successful, but he was able to sort of pump out these shows, and, and she was struggling to do that. That being said, she feels like she now has a good handle on, on what it is that works on Netflix, uh, they seem actually quite happy with with what she's doing and how she's thinking about it. So uh, all good. But yes, it, it did take a while. I, I want to follow up on that on that last bit, because you did talk to Netflix people as well. Do you get any sense that there was any freaking out about the fact that this was a very, very highly publicized deal? And thus far, the current amount that they have to show for it is at this second, literally nothing. Yeah, certainly when you talk to other people at Netflix, you know, Ted Sarandos insisted, no, that this is the process and it takes people time and he doesn't see this as a, you know, one five year contract and goodbye. He sees it as, as you know, two contracts, if not more. Others there. Yeah. I mean, said absolutely. And not unlike Shonda, where there was moments of like, uh, what, what are we doing here? Uh, we need content to be able to sort of justify this. That being said, I think she is, is, you know, she's since had meetings with, with all of, you know, the different programming teams at Netflix and really, I, I think unlike some others there, and, and I won't name names, uh, I, I'm guessing you could probably fill in the blanks, really interested in, in trying to understand sort of how to win on Netflix is really interested in like the, the global nature of, what they are looking for, really trying to understand, okay, interactive, cool. Like, what does that mean? How do you do that? What works on Netflix? And is, you know, she has an interactive relationship drama project uh, going there that, that hadn't been previously announced. Bridgerton, her first show, is based on this really international, you know, this, this romance novels with a really uh, fervent international fan base. Understanding this sort of, I, I can't just do the niche things that are going to work uh, for you know my friends in Los Angeles, which I think you are uh, seeing some of from others. Most definitely. And we can read between the lines and figure that out, especially with that last comment. Um, so, you know, wrapping things up, Lacey, she's got this big slate of, of projects now. And then, you know, you also reported um, something I've been hearing for a while, too, that there's another Grey's Anatomy spinoff in the works. The future of that franchise, did you say anything about how much longer that goes? And just really where where her passions lie right now. Yeah. Uh, with regard to the ABC of it all, I, she really has turned that over to Krista Vernoff, who I know you've spoken to on this pod before. Um, and, and that was, by the way, that was not an easy handover. I mean, I think finally finding someone who she trusted to truly take over was was rough on both ends, but they got there. And so... She's sort of deferring to to Ellen and, and Krista on that. She's uh, and I think that those will go on as long as as they want them to in terms of other, you know, other spinoffs. 
that does require Shonda's permission and she is not so willing to give it unless it's an absolutely perfect idea. As she said, you have to be really careful with that, uh, though obviously they've had success doing so. And in terms of uh, her sort of focus now, yeah, I mean, I, I think she talked a lot uh, you know, in, in our last conversation and we had a few about, you know, there, there was a, you know, that her sort of legacy is set, right? So, so now she doesn't feel, you know, I think I asked her, is she nervous? And she laughed and she said, everyone, you know, everyone keeps asking me this because it has been three years and, and it's been many, many more years since she's launched, you know, a series of her own creation. And she said, you know, I don't feel nervous in the way I used to always feel nervous. And if you read her book, uh, you know that she, she felt very nervous for a very long time. And she said, you know, my legacy is set. I'm, I'm writing now because I want to write. And she referenced a, a something uh, Oprah Winfrey had said to her several, several years ago, sort of at the height of her Grey's success, which is she said something along the lines of, like, you're not enjoying this yet. And she thought a lot about that. And she hadn't been. I mean, Oprah had been right. She hadn't been enjoying it. And so now it's as she says, you know, she wants to enjoy it. Now, whether somebody who's who's that driven can fully enjoy it, jury's out. But that's that's sort of her goal. There are still many more juicy details in Lacey's cover story interview with Shonda Rhimes, which is either on newsstands everywhere or on the interwebs. You can just read it at THR.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Lacey. Thanks for having me. Speaking of powerful showrunners, that leads us into our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week created NBC's time-hopping family drama, This Is Us, which currently ranks as the most-watched scripted drama on broadcast television. Dan Fogelman also created former Fox baseball drama Pitch and counts Gallivant, The Neighbors, and Features, including Tangled and Crazy Stupid Love among his credits. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Of course, thanks for having me. So season five of This Is Us debuts in October. You've previously announced that it will tackled the coronavirus pandemic. Can you walk us through the conversations to, that led to that decision? I mean, and was there a point where you considered not writing it into sh to the show? I know Krista Vernoff, who runs Grey's Anatomy, was on our show and said she didn't want to, and her writing staff convinced her otherwise. Yeah, um, we had a similar experience. We had um, we have an unusual structure of the way our season um, breaks, which is that we try to follow... Uh, in our present day storylines, we kind of follow a present day calendar, meaning every year we're pretty consistently going off the air in about February or March. And every year we're coming back in September. And so even though we don't, you know, put dates on anything, basically when our present day storylines end at the end of a season, they pick up and six months have passed. So, you know, um, that, so everything timed for us exactly as, um, the, the virus time. We were wrapping, um, I was putting the final touches on our season finale as Newsom ordered the lockdown in, in California. And we were racing to kind of finish in our edit bays and make backup plans in the event we couldn't, couldn't finish. Um, and then we'd already broken because we already, we, we've been lucky enough to know we're coming back for the last few years. We, we knew we were coming back the next season. So we'd already broken the front half of our television season for the, for the next year. And obviously we're tied to a lot of different things because of how we jump around in time. Um, there's no alter, there's no real big change of plans that you can make on our show. So, um, that was what we were dealing with. I was already writing the series premiere, the season premiere of, of the season. 
And we were having, I remember I almost canceled our rap party because I was one of the people who was very on COVID very early. My wife was pregnant. And uh, so I was following everything that was happening overseas very closely. And I was almost on the cusp of canceling our rap party and I did it. Um, but I was also writing the series, the series, the season premiere. So that became, I right away wanted to address it in the show. Um, my gut instinct was that, um, you know, A, the virus had not been politicized yet in any real way. So it was to me a, a health issue, a disease, a virus that is affecting kind of American modern day life in a major way. And my thought was that we have this platform with the show where we, that's exactly what we do. And it would be almost irresponsible um, to, to kind of, for us, particularly on this show, even though on other shows I might not have addressed it to not dive into it. But that led to just a tremendous amount of conversation with our writer staff, as, as you were just describing, Krista had said, in hers. And um, we kind of have an open forum where everybody from the assistants to the senior producers have a voice and an equal voice and kind of participating in conversations. And there was weeks of conversation and debate. And that's where it started. So then um, we weren't really getting anywhere. You know, and I was lying at the ceiling all night saying, what, what you know, you start doubting things and there, there were views all over the spectrum. Eventually, I sat down and I just wrote the first 20 pages. I, I, I kind of made my doctor call, which is that this isn't going to go away anytime soon. We're not at risk of writing about something that's just going to suddenly not be an issue in a month that by the time we air. And I wrote the first 20 pages of the first season, which were all sticking to the same plan we always had, but including what's what was going on in the world. And um, and that I sent to the writers and started getting some momentum of like, okay, we can do this. Okay, we should do this. But it was still not universally everybody was on board. And there was just a lot of conversations, man. We were like, we were, it was a lot of like, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of stuff coming at me related to this. And I don't want to watch it on my favorite TV show. And then there were a lot of, and a lot of people saying, what if it's, what if it's still going by then? And I'm like, then we have a responsibility to do it. And then some of us would argue, but that isn't that overwhelming. And, you know, and so there, there were a lot of those kind of conversations. Um, and ultimately, I think we just decided to move forward. And I kind of made the decision that we were moving forward doing it. So that was the first part of the process. Well, I think it's interesting that the this is a show that we think of as being this big family all together at once. But you really have these storylines that are fairly geographically disparate. And if you wanted to, there's no reason why you couldn't have the characters all being in their sort of three or four different pods. Is there a geographical change this season to avoid having the characters constantly jumping on airplanes and going and being there for reunions as they have been in the past? Not too much. I mean, we were tied. One of the things we had to deal with was we're tied to where they're going in the season premiere, which is all the family being kind of geographically together. And so we had to figure that out. We had some logistics to figure out. We're obviously determined to treat, treat this very responsibly on TV. Kind of, you're right though, in that we, um, we do have the benefit. This is a show about family and family units. And so you do have the benefit of being able to tell remarkably similar stories that you would have been telling anyways, inside of your, your homes. Our little, our thing we're trying to do to also make a television show where there is geographical separation is to kind of um, put people, when people are really, really intimately in our world and of the same family, we kind of accept 
um, and we try and give great voice to their quarantine periods and their stuff if they need to be pulled together to kind of see one another. But it is a, it's a logistical challenge we face. We treat like our immediate Pearson family members a little bit differently than we treat everybody else in the outside world. And it's like the only way we're kind of functionally able to do it. Um, but we also give explanation to it. Um, in our season premiere, we needed to get the bulk of our West Coast people to the East Coast. And they actually did one of the things because they were able to with time where they quarantined extensively for weeks, got tested and then drove cross country and shifts in, a, in, an, in an RV. And that was the way we dealt with it to get to get them there. It's not a big, it's not a big thing that we are sitting and focusing on in the show. We're not sitting inside of the RV for the trip, but like we have to make a television show ultimately. And so that was, that's the way we can do it and still have characters not in masks around other immediate family members who they're not potted up with what by giving the responsible behavior that, and so, but we are limiting it for sure in the first half of the season. There's not a lot of cross, um, cross contamination outside of our first episode. So we've, you figured out the, lo- the logistics, you've gotten the family together. What can you say about how the Pearsons are handling it? And as a writing staff, how do you dramatize so- or, or something that has killed more than 210,000 Americans and like, and, and, and how do you do this, you know, without exploring the politics at the same time? Well, I mean, the politics is never where we've lived as a show. It's more about like kind of the experience of just being a person like in, in the world and in the country right now. So what we've tried to do is, you know, we have these, you know, with our present day characters, we do, we have a kind of upwardly mobile family who is, you know, like, but, but then we also have, they're living in different places and they have different kind of experiences with the world and different t- walks of life. So none of our characters are necessarily, you know, essential workers who are kind of knee, knee deep in, in the virus. They're not working at hospitals, but we've got a city councilman who is working in a city where he, that is being beset by, be, by it. But then you've also got the movie star you know, who's probably more of one of the people whose life is drastically affected, but he's also hoarding toilet paper and, you know, and, and, and that, that's a concern. And we're trying to show the spectrum. We've also got an aging mother at the beginning of a of perilous disease who was heading off to a clinical trial. So I think our family covers a part of the spectrum um, of what the average kind of American might be dealing with. But we're also being careful to make sure that even if we're not showing it on the show, because it might not, none of our characters are necess- are getting COVID or, or dying of COVID, it's certainly something that we're not just treating um, glibly or, or lightly. I mean, you're seeing real affect on, and that's in the course of the season, on livelihoods, on lives, on medical treatments, and on kind of relationships um, without necessarily diving into the uh, you know, doing kind of something where it's like affecting one of them is getting it essentially. Um, and so we're trying to, we're, we're riding that line and trying to do what we just honestly are operating from a place of what would be happening to these characters in the show with where they are, how would it be affecting them and what it would, would it be doing to them? Are you guys able to give consideration to your own senses of what audiences are looking for in terms of tone at this minute? Like, do you get the sense that audiences are really looking to cry even more than normal or that really, frankly, people would just as soon laugh and chuckle and have some warmth or or whatever? Or is the DNA of the show such that it covers such a wide emotional range that you assume you'll you'll hit whatever America wants and you're not going to change to adapt to that? I think that's that's the latter. I think we're we kind of we never despite what people might think, we never think like we never talk about like, oh okay, we're getting towards the end of an episode, let's try and have a heartfelt scene that makes people cry or, or we're prop we're not really attacking this moment in time that that way. I mean, certainly like 
the stakes are ratcheted up. Like one of, one of our directors of the pilot had this expression, who's a friend of mine, and he would call it life at full volume. And like, it definitely feels like our country is in that state right now. And even if our lives feel very quiet inside of our little bubbles and homes, um, it does feel like everything is heightened right now. And for a show like ours, which is like about a family that often has ups and downs and plays over time, like here's a moment when everybody's insulated. Um, so yeah, we're trying to stick with the same tone of the show. Like our, you know, our working theories, there's, there's constantly a massive tragedy in this country. Um, and there's so many things going wrong in the world pre-COVID and there will be post-COVID. And, it do, and there's so much sadness and so much melancholy and there's so much injustice. But we still find laughter amidst our little bubbles and Zoom calls. It's not like the world has completely stopped loving and laughing. And so I think we have a really nice balance in, in, in this episode, which is like, we dig into the hard stuff as we always do. It is a very challenging season premiere of the show. It's pro- possibly the proudest I've ever been of the show. I've never worked so hard on anything in my life. I've been working on this since February, along with my writing staff and particularly with um, our, my co-writer, one of my co-writers here, Kay. Um, and we've been, you know, really going at it and really working hard and really determined to get this on the Tuesday before the election, as opposed to when it was scheduled to be, which was after. Um, and so, I mean, I'm editing up to, I have not locked a cut yet that airs on Tuesday. I'm finishing up the mixes and stuff right now. We've, we just finished shooting a couple of days ago. Um, and I'm really proud of it. And so, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of warmth in it, but it's definitely like, there's also a lot of like guts and blood and guts in it, uh, for this family, for these characters. And, and I just want to go back and touch on something that you said a minute ago. You said that none of the Pearsons will, will have had or, or get COVID. Was that a larger discussion of these characters just wouldn't come in contact with it? Or was that, can you walk us through the thinking on that? No, not at all. In fact, that wasn't part of the discussion. It just didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like, it didn't feel like our show needed to do that for, for me. I, I, that was never even part of the discussion. Should somebody get it or not? Honestly, just because um, I think it would overwhelm everything and we want to, you know, tell the story of what the average person and the average family is going through right now, not by average, but meaning like just by percentages. And so that, that felt like to me, I don't even think we dis- that wasn't a huge source of discussion. Like should one of them get it or not? Honestly, just because, um, I don't know, that just wasn't where that just wasn't on the table for us for some reason. Well, but it becomes at a certain point, sort of whether if you have a family that is, 15 people what what is the count of what the pearsons are these days in terms of regular family members i don't i don't have the number in my mind but it, it, you know mathematic mathematically speaking at a certain point you know someone could just be asymptomatic or something you know there are plenty of ways that you could address it and be mathematically accurate i guess is what i'm thinking yeah no that's fair yeah i i, I think that's actually fair i mean i think you know because we're taking the families, all three families on the show are being steadfast in their thing, in their kind of quarantine is like, you know, I'm learning, we're back in production right now. And you can't stop a person that you kind of know from getting it and from whatever they do in their own world. But if you're being super religious with your, your bubble and the people you see, and you're able to do that as all our characters were, and you wear the PPE, it's, it's really showing that like you can protect your own family from it if you're if you're really and then it's just a matter of how 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 strict you want to be about it and so i think we do have just out of a sense of responsibility we're trying to have our family be 
very responsible with 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 all of that, um, and so it kind of limits the odds, I think, a little bit for those three of three or four immediate families. We have, you know, the older relatives are quarantining in a cabin. We have, you know, it's it's we're, we're, it's that kind of stuff. Now, this is a show that does, as you say, it works on multiple storylines and timelines at once. And our terrific uh, writer, Gene Bentley, asked, um, you know, is the lack of masks at the 40th birthday, for example, is that going to be explained? Have you needed to retrofit some of the things you've done in the future to adjust to what the real present has actually been? A little bit. I mean, we have, as I said, outside of this first episode when we needed to get the family members together and I couldn't just functionally for a TV show have people inside a family cabin and mass and mass the entire time. We go to great lengths to explain the bubbles, the testing and the, the quarantine periods that have allowed people to be comfortable with one another in their immediate family as if, it, you know, for those of us who are contemplating getting together with families over holidays, the ones who are most strict are the ones that are going to take a break before they see one another or quarantine for extensive periods beforehand and try not to fly and all of that kind of stuff we're doing with our family as best we can and then kind of moving past it. But, you know, when we have somebody meeting at a doctor appointment or, you know, we have people having babies this year and I just experienced having a baby in the midst of this, like we're working that stuff in. You don't, you don't we're not going to have pregnant people in doctor's office, not in a mask. We're not going to have you know, if people are being approached for an autograph on the street, like one of our characters, that per- they'll put our mask on quickly when the person is approaching, you know, and when anybody's approaching them. So we're trying to deal with it that way um, and not make it just like overwhelm everything where we can't have two characters have a conversation, not in a mask. Um, but it's a constant, like when we have our concept meetings and tone meetings and production meetings, like it's a con- it will be a constant for us, particularly in the front half of our season where we go, OK, what are we doing regarding masks in this scene? And then, you know what I mean? And like and then we have to figure it out. It's a lot. But also, I, th- I think the audience will be, I, I think if people, you know, if we're, if shows are going to, inc- a medical show has a little bit more of a, um, of a grounding, like this, this is not going away anytime soon, um, masks, right? So at a certain point, people are either going to have to accept, and I'm not just speaking about our television show, I'm speaking about all TV shows, either that all television is not going to exist in a world with COVID where people wear masks, or people are going to have to be a little forgiving of mask wearing on television because it's just not conducive to television to not be able to see three quarters of a person's face. And so I think, I think, I suspect audiences will be forgiving of that stuff to a degree. Um, and as long as you're treating it responsibly and not just being like a kind of a lunatic about it. Right. You know, you, you've mentioned that you and your wife welcomed your first child uh, this summer. How has being a father impacted the stories that you want to tell and how you tell them? Well, we just we so happen to have a lot of new parent stories coming this year. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, we're, do, we're doing a lot, you know, driving, there was, you know, especially as it relates to COVID, but all things really, um, you know, I've had I, you know, I always hoped and planned on being an engaged and present everyday father, but certainly like the pandemic has given me no choice. And so I'm here. Um, and so, uh, you just have a lot of stories, you know, we have Kevin's character this season will be having children at some point and, um, Kate and Toby are adopting a new baby. We always have the opportunity to go back, um, to parent Jack and Rebecca in that baby period. So we have a lot of that stuff coming in this season, which frankly, again, one of those happy accidents was already coming. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. And then, you know, we've been telling these stories for years. We have a lot of parents of a lot of different ages on our group. And I've always accessed our father, son and mother, daughter and mother, son and father, daughter stories from the POV of the son or, or the daughter, I think, like the child, because even though I'm getting old now, 
I, I, but I, I, my perspective was always that of the son. When I'm writing a scene between young Kevin and Jack or young Randall and Jack, I'm in the POV of, in my mind's eye, being young, young Randall or young Kevin, not Jack. And suddenly that starts switching when you have a kid. I still have a baby, so I'm still probably tapping in more to the thing. But when we're telling, especially newborn baby stories, I'm for the first time, I'm not the baby anymore. I think I'm the dad. <laughs> You know, at, at the same time, you know, Mandy Moore is pregnant. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, is there a way to incorporate that into the show or how are you navigating that, especially in, in with how challenging it is to film right now? Yeah. I mean, so far it hasn't been an issue. Um, Ma- Mandy wants to work and we're not really altering our timeline too much. Um so far, so good. And so we're not like necessarily just going into her pregnancy period to mask anything frankly like um she's not there yet you know what i mean and so um we, we have plans in motion to how handle some of the logistics um as need be like in terms of when we would shoot some stuff and um how we're so we're lucky we have such a good writing staff we're so far ahead on scripts that we can plan ahead for things when they're complicated so, so lots of plants that she'll be holding or big purses <laughs> yeah i mean I, I that i really don't know yet luckily mandy's like uh, like so statuesque and six foot tall that maybe like, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about how women carry babies and stuff. So I'm just closing my eyes and, and not, not dealing with, <laughs> but I, she's, she's been, I mean, she's just amazing. She's like, I want to work. I want to come back. I want to, I, I want to go to my last possible moment. So, you know, we're just kind of going with that. It's, it's just, it's been, it's a year of a lot of production challenges. That's, that is definitely for sure. Well, you, you mentioned being ahead in the writer's room and that's one thing, but you also mentioned that you just finished shooting the, the premiere and, you know, it's going to air next week. How much longer did the shooting of this episode take compared to a normal episode? And is that going to impact how much story you can actually get through before before Mandy has her baby or just before your season runs out of time, basically? Um, yeah, it's a good question. We we didn't know going into it, honestly, um, what the effects of this. We're shooting at the same pace. So we have... Um, we, we're constantly saying, I, you know, everyone, every showrunner believes it. I believe I have the best crew on this show on, on television. Um, but we are in such a rhythm for five years now, like nobody leaves, that it's awkward with the masks and the rule and the PPE and like stepping in and stepping out and putting actors in bubbles between takes. But it has not affected for us our pace of play. We, we, uh, we, I, we constantly are saying, God, it would be tough to be doing a pilot right now or be starting a first season show. Um, but the actors, I mean, our actors come in to a person. I mean, wait till you see them in the first episode. But like they know their shit from the moment they step onto stage. If they only can have one take, which never happens, I could air it tomorrow, you know. And so so and our crew doesn't miss a shot directors don't need to overcover scenes we never have because we know what we're doing now and so that's been a huge benefit but i wouldn't want to be starting from scratch um but so far so good i mean we we are we're testing like crazy we're doing it i am like i am sending notes to my crew like every night just saying like let's not take our foot off the gas let's be vigilant this weekend with our families i'm like the covid nazi right now um and so and so we're uh, we're doing it, you know, but you can't you can, you know, th- this thing is so prevalent that it's going to creep in and affect your your schedule. Thus far, the, the precautions we're taking are not delaying us. 
you know, we had America Ferrara on our show last week, and she mentioned when she was uh, rap, doing her rap on Superstore, which is obviously a half hour versus your show, which is an hour, and that it, they added an extra day to their production. So you're saying that you haven't had any time, extra time per episode. So with that in mind, are your scripts a few pages shorter than they would have been this time last year? No, we really haven't changed anything, honestly. Um, we... We, we went into the first, I'm trying to think like, cause now I'm in episode nine and now we feel very confident in what we're, I'm in episode 12 and we're, we feel very confident in terms of script of what we're doing. But, um, I'm trying to think what we did for episodes one and two. We always have a process on our show where the scripts come in, we write whatever we want with no limitations. And then our, um, producer comes to us like, guys, I could use a little relief. Like there's too many locations. There's too many scenes. It's too long. And then we, we, we I, myself and our writers and Isaac Elizabeth, we go and we figure out how to adjust. In this case, I think it was just like that kind of normal process, but it wasn't for COVID. There's like a side budget that's put aside, like your emergency fund for COVID things. Um, and that includes extra time. But I think we're feeling like we might have had an extra day on our schedule for that. We crawl, we did two episodes together with one director. And so it's a whole different thing. But I think we're pretty much heading into our normal rhythm now of our normal, like I think, eight day shoot. Yeah. You know, we had Alex Kurtzman on a couple of weeks ago and he mentioned kind of the an eye popping number in terms of increased costs. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the extra the side COVID budget, which obviously does include time, but it does include finances for for PPE and all the testing and everything else. But how much would you say your budget has increased because of the extra lengths that you need to go to to film safely? Our, I, I think our budget, I, mean, I don't know what I'm allowed to talk about, but I think our budget has not increased. I know that there's this like for our show and I don't know how it works for every show is like there's this side budget that you get, which is like all your COVID extra stuff can go into that pocket, but not count against your daily, your weekly pattern budget for the show, which is really what it costs. I know that our pattern budget like that has not increased. Um, we have had, we had a couple of COVID delays in our first two episodes. Um, I'm being strictly like super strict about things more than even maybe the union studio protocols. Um, beg for that we had to dip into that for, for a delay. Um, and, but, but our, but our episodes came in under our budget because we just worked really fast and we cross boarded. And my commitment has been barring disaster. We're going to try and come in, you know, we're going to come in at our same budget as always overall. The hard part is when you have, if you have a positive that filters into your like a zone, which is going to happen for people. And it's not going to be necessarily because of irresponsible behavior. And it's not going to be for a lack of protocols. And I'm not even talking about your actors. I'm talking, if the, if a person, you're hearing of these shows that have to shut down for 14 days, you know, based off the rules that will have a huge, that will have a huge effect on people when it happens. And it will, you know, especially if you're on a network television schedule and not making like a Netflix show that just dump hat waits till all the show episodes are completed. That's where everybody's going to have to like kind of dance a little bit. Um, so far we're on schedule and, you know, we've had, we're, we're shooting our third and we only have four episodes four or five episodes that are airing this year before a break. And we go off the air for the holidays, kind of like we always do and come back in like January. Um, I imagine if something happened before then it could affect you. Hopefully you have time to like kind of backdate and delay then on the opposite side, but it's going to have an effect on everybody, especially in network television that has air dates and schedules and people are buying commercials, um, for episodes. I'm sure that are set to air at a certain time. It's a bit of, it's a nightmare for everybody. I think. Yeah. What would you say your PPE budget is? 
Well, it's a lot because it's a lot of things going to. I think it's millions of dollars. Um, if I'm if I'm correct, it's. But I think because one of the things that you need is. I mean, it's we're rigorous, so we've installed ventilation onto all of our sets. We've taken roofs off of our sets so that even our indoor spaces are more outdoor. We have um, the PPE. We have hand sanitizing stations. We have dis, we disinfect sets every time some, something is done or every so often. Cleaning crews. It's a tremendous amount of stuff that, and rigor and testing still in this country is extremely, extremely expensive, especially if you want the high quality testing. That's not only the um, the uh, the PCR test, but also gives you results like that night or within 24 hours, which is what you need to do to operate successfully. And so it's very expensive. You know what I mean? And you're hearing a lot of shows that are going down because of you know, that were supposed to come back and aren't. And it's probably because like, I imagine these studios are going to have to do a lot of math about, you know, where are they going to spend the money? Because when you have the inevitable long shutdowns, it's very, very expensive. Yeah. Kurtzman mentioned that uh, his per episode budget on a show like Star Trek Discovery, just for the the added COVID uh, expenses, COVID related expenses, it it ranges between 300,000 and 500,000 per episode. And if, you know, on a broadcast show, that's even bigger because you're, you're almost doubling the number of episodes. Yeah. I mean, I think that we have our studio has been so great with us, which is now like Disney 20th and Disney, but also NBC has been really, I mean, listen, you can, you can put into a budget, whatever you want. This is all for, there's what the expenses are, which is expensive, but I think more manageable. And then there's like what people are allocating for in the event of like you having to shut down for 14 days. And that's where you're just like, you're just in it, you know? And so like a budget's only as good as until a real disaster strikes, you know, which we're avoiding carefully and all shows are, I know, but um, yeah, it's a complicated, it's a complicated zone. I I don't, we don't put it into our production budget, so I don't know how much it is per episode, but it ain't cheap. Yeah, I'm going I'm to take a little bit of a sort of step back narratively on the show, because this is a show that obviously puts its characters through the ringer. And as in real life, they don't always respond to adversity in perfect ways. I, I'm curious how often you're surprised by the way that audience members respond to things like R- Randall's rough patch last season or Toby's various struggles. You know, how often do you feel like you can predict responses and how much are you sort of blown away? occasionally by the way they respond to things yeah it's a good question we're, we're pretty blown away we've like i early on like n- nobody expected this show in that first season to kind of like explode into the zeitgeist for a second the way it did so like when you're making a little dramedy on nbc you're not expecting that people are going to be kind of theorizing and riding and dying with like movements of characters so very quickly like we made the rule that we weren't going to just like protect characters and read too much online in order to kind of affect what we were doing. So now we do it with humor. What always surprises me is I'm pretty good at predicting. Like I'll watch an episode and I'll be like, oh shit, they are going to turn on Randall on this one. They are not going to like him this week. And this first week, these first episodes coming back, I think, you know, for those that watch the show, it's going to, there's going to be a lot of conversation coming out of it. And um, I think in the good kind of conversation, not just like how did somebody die, but like, like real conversation because we're digging into some really tough stuff and, um, and people take sides. It always is amazing to me, like how 
when you fought, one of my great pleasures has always been when I'm able to like hopping on like a Twitter on the night when we're airing and watching the people respond to things in real time, not because it affects me, but like it has always been mystifying to me to like, like, like our most Teflon character always has probably been Beth in terms of like response, like Susan's character. People just love her. She can do no wrong. And then she'll have one fight with Randall in one episode and she's the antichrist. And you're like, what the, how do people switch that quickly? It's unbelievable. And so as funny as it can be, um, it also reminds us of like staying on the path of just doing what's right to the characters. Characters are not perfect. Even our beloved father, Patriarch Jack, is like is an alcoholic who's made bad mistakes with his family, you know? And like, so you have to be willing to go there. It's, it's just not interesting. You're just creating these superheroes who never make any mistakes all the time, like emotional superheroes. And so I'm most interested when people are mad at our characters or have a rooting in, or have a rooting interest. And I'm most proud when it's like a marital fight or a fight between siblings where people have different access points and might be fighting over who's in the right or wrong. Like to me, that's like, that's what we all bring into our work lives, right? We have a fight with our spouse and then you bring it in and you complain to your friend at work and they're like, ah, kind of on your wife's side on this one. Or, or they say, oh, your wife really overstepped on that one. And so I think like if we can bring that into like life, I think that's where we get really interesting. What do you though make of kind of the instinct on an audience's part? And I, I assume I do this as much as anyone of the God, now I hate Randall. Randall's awful, as opposed to the reaction being, boy, Randall made a bad mistake in this particular scenario, but he's still the character he was for the two seasons before. Right. Well, I think you're voyeuristic when you're watching television, right? You're not, you, you don't react to characters the same way that you do into people in your real life. In your real life, you're probably more forgiving because you're also inside of it with them. But here you're literally watching with an outside point of view, these characters who you relate to because you've been with them for multiple seasons. That's when you really get invested. You relate to them almost as if they're a real person in a way, but you also have this kind of bird's eye view of them where it's not really real. So I think that's probably why people turn so quickly um, and then turn and then turn back. So, I mean, I can watch the people on Twitter go through a range of emotions in 20 minutes of a television show that are kind of like, they're unbelievable. Like the swing, the pendulum swings of, I hate a character to that's my favorite scene ever. I love him. And you're like, how, wow, that is quite a ride you're going on. I mean, so uh, I always find it pretty fascinating, but. So we know, you know, I know we're coming to the end of our time together, but you know, the show has obviously been renewed through season six, which the last that I heard was the plan for the end game. And you've previously told our great, this is us reporter, Gene Bentley, that, you know, after the season three finale that you were halfway through, um, is the plan still for six seasons and how has the, the way that you changed about the show's future been impacted by the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, you always like, you always think about you know, it's not impacted by the pandemic as much as just like, I honestly, because of the pandemic and because the first two episodes came early and we were far ahead on script, I got to spend a lot of time on set for these first two episodes. I also wanted to be there to make sure everybody was wearing their masks and, and doing it right. You're so fond of the people you work with that like, you really like, when you're like, oh God, we're coming to an end. You're like, God, why, why don't we want to keep doing this forever? Like, it's it's such a great group of people. And like, I love what we do and I love what we put out in the world. And even if it's quieter by the end than it would have been, than it started at the beginning by the nature of television, like it's such a, uh, we all feel so lucky to be doing it. But like, to me, like artistically, you really have to fight those instincts off a little bit. Um, because sometimes like relationships and work and commerce, which are a big thing, like they fight, they fight, what you're trying to do artistically. Um, and so 
I'm sticking with my plan um, that the kind of the Pearson's story come, kind of comes to completion when I think it is. They don't like me talking about it. I, they get they get mad at me when I talk about the end, and I don't know why. I think people like knowing like when the end is, but um, you know, are there things like? Is there a genre of television inside of this show that I believe in and that I love? Yes, but because of how we play in time, because I know where our endpoints are, like, I, I, there's no more t- story to tell there in this fa- in, in this family when it, when it comes to the place where they don't want me to talk about. So with presumably season five and season six left, what kind of thoughts are you having about a This Is Us spinoff? Um, not a lot. I'm tired. It's so hard. Like making 18 episodes and trying to keep up the quality is really, it's just really hard. We're, I, you know, I say it all the time and it's not a woe is me because we're quite well compensated and rewarded for it. But like, if you're trying to stay in the conversation with these other wonderful shows that have no act breaks and no minute limitation and often unlimited budgets it requires like it's a tremendous amount of work it is for any show but to do 18 episodes and to try and do it at that level and manage these timelines and the ambition of it we're doing things this season that are just like more ambitious than anything we've done i think storytelling wise and so to keep that up for 18 episodes is like to think about spin-offs makes me want to like throw up but um, <laughs> but yeah i mean i think i think that like um like i said like if my brain goes there, it goes there towards like, you know, it just doesn't go there necessarily with the, with the Pearson family, if that makes any sense. And that's that, but I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know that anybody has it left in them. Like, it's nice to like, it would be nice to be like, to, I, I feel really confident in what we're doing these next two seasons. And like, it would be nice to Barry Sanders it a little bit and just kind of like call it a day before you suck. And like, <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, success always breeds imitators, and certainly when this show blew up, all of the other broadcast networks started trying to get their own This Is Us. Do you ever, out of curiosity, see a trailer for a show on another network go, okay, that's clearly one that's trying to do something like what we're doing, I might as well check it out, or do you avoid those imitators? Um, I haven't seen any of the ones that have come subsequent to us, but I've heard really nice things. I mean, sometimes I think it's not, it's not the fault of the people making the shows. It can often be how it's marketed and like, you know, literally like what, how they make the materials feel because that's on a studio and on a network level where they're trying to capture something. But like, I don't know. I mean, I remember when we started people, I mean, I loved Kadem's stuff. Like I loved Friday Night Lights and I didn't watch all Parenthood, but I really liked it. And I remember- Oh, please, please finish that as one of my all-time shit. I know. know, Me too. And you know what it is? It's it's just the amount of episodes. It's like, I remember I started, I was like, how am I going to watch this much television? I always worry about that with our show. Like, when are people going to catch up on 108 episodes of This Is Us if they never gave it a shot before? Like, how do you even begin to embark upon that process? But, um, but- uh, I remember Parenthood would come up a lot when I was doing early press or Friday Night Lights, particularly those two shows. And, and sometimes I'd go back to older shows. And I was like, God, I wasn't thinking about any of that when I was writing it. But it's clearly the genre I love and these two wonderful shows that exist inside of the genre. So, of course, there'll be comparisons. Like, I would hate for whoever comes along or maybe, like, to create the next family dramedy with a little bit of emotion and a little bit of humor. Like, 
that, like, I want that because I like that type of television. You know, I want them to succeed. So it's, I don't, I don't, I think it's just the nature. I think sometimes it's the nature of the marketing, the way people market things. It's like, oh God, it's a, this is us ripoff. And I'm like, that's not what the, that's not what the person writing it was trying to do. He wasn't sitting in, he might've liked this is us or he might've never seen it or she might've never seen it, but, and it, they just like that genre, you know what I mean? And then it's the, it's the network who chose to make that one and market it that way. That was chasing it. Not the people making it. I don't, I don't think. Right. But it's like the, the family drama with a twist, right? Like some kind of a catch sure. with, you know, with a mystery, you know, factored into it versus just what, as, as you said, what Kadams did is the straight family drama. That's true. And, you know, I think, I think what's happening a little, and you'll see it in all genres of TV probably is like, man, it's hard to get noticed right now. And as a viewer of television, it's hard to get me to click the button that starts the binge or the watch or the hit the DVR button on my TV. And so it's rare that people sit and talk just about like the high quality of the plotless, the plotless show, like to, enough to make, make it noticed. So I think you will see a lot of things that have a twist, a thing, a thing as people incredible, as more and more materials made, people are just trying to cut through the landscape. And it's hard, you know, that's a hard thing to do. Like, I don't even know, we have other shows starting or that I'll produce, not write, or I think about it while I do another show or what will my next show be. I'm like, how the hell do you get anything noticed? Like in this environment right now, like, you know, it's really hard. Um, It's, I think the pandemic has made it even harder. People are relying on old comfort television, reality television, because they don't really want to invest in things that are like too heavy or too emotional or too, you know, and so, or, or, so it's going to be, it'll be an interesting time for television. I suspect, I suspect television is heading towards a place, believe it or not, where in terms of new material starts getting a little bit more pared back for the first time where this can't sustain itself, this feeding frenzy of more content, more content, more content, more places. And eventually the content will be what already exists. And the new stuff in order for it to make sense financially, then it'll be a little bit of a survival of the fittest. I think that may take a decade, but, um, but I think that's where we may be heading. Now I should note that part of the reason why people would have asked you about Friday night lights when this is us premiered is because at the same time you were also doing promotion for pitch a show that we on this podcast, were both large fans of. And I think it's always notable how the fan base for that show pops up still in places. You had that you had that Hulu yeah. promotion that you did in I guess it was the spring, but it feels like a hundred years ago, that had people once again going, My God, does that mean that the show's gonna come back? Because people won't let go of that show. Where do you stand on letting go of that show personally, or do you still have hope for it? Yeah, I mean I have a few. Like um but yeah, pitches we've had quite a ride since it got canceled. Um in terms of like really getting close. To getting it back um and so that's part of like the, that fan base is constantly feeling that kind of energy it's been a hard needle to thread i mean um we also now have the added reality of our actors are busy and all over the place so that's the second co- like even if i could snap my fingers tomorrow and get it back on the air the reality of that is 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 not as real as it may have been at one moment in time. Yeah. Kylie's um, on a new David E. Kelly show on ABC. Mark Paul is uh, back at saved by the bell for Peacock. That's yeah. your two central stars. Yeah. It's a lot. And, and yeah, I never let go of any of the old ones. Like I had, I had, like, I had an old show that I loved that was at the beginning, critically mistreated uh, or not mistreated, but critically panned. And I think misunderstood 
It was uh, called The Neighbors. It was a, this ridiculous, absurdist comedy. And but then immediately when it came out, everybody was like, "It's stupid." I was like, "No, it's not. It's not meant to be stupid. It's it's poking at itself." And then people started coming around to it. It was doing well. We did two seasons, but then it got canceled. And I've always had this dream of rebooting it as the reboot that nobody was asking for, like like and and marketing it that way. And <laughs> um, and I had a show. Galavant that I was so incredibly proud of and that has gotten such a massive like kind of fan base in the in the subsequent years that I like have a hard time letting go of because it just got like it got a really rough ride on the network when it when it aired um, and then there's pitch so they're all really hard to let go of at a certain time you have to say like you know what like we had a good run we got something great on TV. The difficult part with Pitch compared to my other two series that got canceled that I loved, which didn't have the same type of fan base, but was I got to complete those in the way that they meant to be completed. I saw the cancellation coming and we were at the end of the second season, so I wrote an ending. And that was always one of the great frustrations of Pitch for all of us was that we didn't get to complete the story. That uh, The finale still makes me so angry because knowing that the show is canceled, it sends such an awful message. And if you haven't seen pitch and you have any interest in watching a show about the first female baseball player in the major leagues, please mute me right now. But it ends where she, the, she gets injured and it sends a message that women cannot succeed in major league baseball. And it, as a huge baseball fan, it, it breaks my heart. Yeah. So is there any way to continue that? A one-off anything a comic book? I don't care. Just give me something. We talk about it because I hadn't, because I hadn't and really haven't yet given up on something. Um, I haven't gone there yet, but there's definitely like a completion of the story to be shared with people. Um, how we do that and when, but like right now I'm still, I think I'm a little like a Sisyphus right now pushing the, 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 the but, uh, yeah, I, because I hadn't given up on the actual reboot, like kind of continuation of the series yet. I haven't quite gone there in any other way yet. But there, there, there has, there will be something. Um, it was just, it, it might have been a year or two ahead. I don't even know. I sometimes I, I retroactively look at all the old TV stuff and my failed when movies I've had have failed, and I'm like, what's the five degree pendulum swing that could have changed the whole um, story on this one? And like, I remember like. It, it might have been as much as a time slot, like, and it was a last minute decision. And when we were put where we were put and when we were put, it, it could have been that much. And that show may have still been on the air. And Kylie's character may have been like, kind of like a character that nationally, like nationally people are kind of more aware of. Like it was that close, I think. Um, yeah. But I, I just not, remember. Yeah. I just remember watching the world series and not seeing ads for pitch, which is like yeah. when major league baseball is an actual partner in the show and a financial partner at that. And you're not using that, that platform to reach that audience. Like women like baseball, you know, market the show. We don't care about lethal weapon, which is long gone, you know, like the, the, anyway, the, I the, the, the ironic part though, and I always say it because like I've had other shows where there have been kind of villains in the story, like in my own mind's eye, like, where opportunities maybe missed, sure. But there was no, like every single person involved in the show, and I'm talking the studios, the networks, the market people, like they loved it. You know, people were heartbroken when they had to cancel it. So for whatever reason, and whether, like you could point at a gazillion, maybe little things and stuff I did included, but like there really was, it was just one of those ones where there was no bad guy here. It was just like this, it just like didn't catch on the way we needed it to for whatever the reason 
just crush it. It crushed me. But we don't want to be responsible on this podcast for this is us being unable to premiere on time uh, next week. So we want to we want to just jump to our traditional last question for everyone, which is, what have you been watching lately and enjoying? I have been watching very little television. Um, honestly, I've been I've been focused on sports and a little bit of reality TV, like just to kind of take it off. I, my wife and I have gotten very into these insane people who do this show married at first sight. Have you guys seen this one? It's insane. Um, they get married to strangers. They're set up by these doctors who do, seem to have no qualification to be setting people up. And so that's one we've been watching. Um, this is, I, I've been rewatching the West wing a little bit as a, to try and get like a bomb for the political kind of nonsense going on. Love on the Spectrum is another reality show that have you guys seen this one? It is it's on Netflix. It is so winning and sweet. Um, what real shows? What not real shows? <laughs> but what 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 modern present day scripted shows have I been watching? You know what I just you know what probably the most recent binge for me was, and it was a month or two ago, but I'd heard good things was the show Dave on FX or now on Hulu. It's unbelievably great. And I, I loved it. Um, it really, there's a third episode of that one um, that is maybe the best comedic plotting I've like, seen in a very long time in a sitcom, in a half hour show when he's, it involves a, a rubber woman doll is all I'll say. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I also love the heart of that, like the surprise, like that's one that like touches me. Like it's, it's pretty out there and it's, the characters can be pretty broad and then it just surprises you in multiple times. And so I really, really was taken with that show. I really haven't been watching TV. I've been watching kind of baseball and football. That, that, that was yeah. that was well, plenty so, of TV. Sorry, sorry about your Mets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry about your Mets, man. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. Uh. <laughs> well, Dan, thank thank you so much for for joining us this week. This is us season five premieres Tuesday, October twenty seventh on NBC. Thanks, guys. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the critics' corner. Among this week's major new launches are the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. HBO brings back David E. Kelly and Nicole Kidman in The Undoing and launches docuseries How To with John Wilson. Plus, City So Real makes its debut on Nat Geo. Dan, what you got? It's actually a, a really good week for for new TV because I'm, I'm going to talk about the TV, but that's leaving out that there are also a lot of uh, straight-to-streaming movies, including the Borat sequel, that a lot of people are are very excited about. So lots and lots to watch. It's hilarious, Dan. I will, I will take your word at least until tomorrow night when I have the chance to watch it. Uh, but yes, lots and lots of good things. My my favorite scripted thing this week, without any question, is uh, The Queen's Gambit, which is Scott Frank's follow-up to Godless, another seven-episode Netflix miniseries. And this one is based on a novel by Walter Tevis, uh, who wrote The Hustler and Color of Money, among other things. And it is similarly... An offbeat underdog sports story, really, uh, set in the world of chess about a young woman who's a chess prodigy and has to make her way in in the 1960s in a largely male world sport pastime, etc. And she is brilliant, but also tortured by her own demons. Uh, she is played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who is just the wonderful here. The, this is a performance that should be nominated for awards 
through the Golden Globes, SAG, and into Emmys next year. This is a great performance by a, a really, really fantastic, promising up-and-coming actors who people have presumably seen in things before. Wonderful performance here. It is, I compared it in my review to The Crown in the sense that it is very much a, a genre piece. It is somewhat formulaic if you wanted to view it that way, but it is formula treated with utmost intelligence on the creative side, with lavish production values, again, with great performances. Anya Taylor-Joy really anchors the entire thing. It is it is her series, but there are a lot of good, strong supporting performances, uh, including Bill Camp, who appears in the first episode as the somewhat curmudgeonly janitor who, who introduces the young woman at the center of the story to the world of chess. Uh, you don't need to know specifics about chess to watch it. You just need to have some curiosity about the things that drive people in intellectually competitive contexts. Uh, I, th I think it's really good. Um, some of our friends and colleagues, I've heard some people say that they think it's a little long. Me, I, I watched seven episodes fully immersed. I'd have watched 10. I would watch a second season, even though it's close ended. I, I loved being a part of this world for, for seven episodes. I really enjoyed this. Uh, so the best thing on the unscripted front, though, and this will take you into next Thursday, is Nat Geo's airing of City So Real, which was one of the best things I watched associated with the Sundance Film Festival back in January. It is from Steve James, who, of course, did Hoop Dreams and also the great, great stars documentary series America to Me, which I feel like I push on people on a weekly basis and will continue to do so because it's, it's just num great. Num it's your number one show of 2019, Dan. It was indeed. Uh, 2018, I 2018. think. 2018. Oh, my God. I, ca I can't keep track, but yes, it was it definitely... It really is the before. It was my number one show of a year, and this could very well be in my top 10 for this year as well. It is James's chronicle of a Chicago mayoral election, but really a depiction of a city at a tipping point. And it was four episodes at Sundance, but he added a fifth episode chronicling how Chicago was impacted by COVID-19. So it's even more a chronicle of a city at a tipping point. Steve James just does these incredibly detailed, nuanced, thoughtful portraits of a city and mostly Chicago, because that's his kind of town. Chicago is. Uh, yeah, I, I loved this miniseries. I, it's not as good as America to me, I don't think, but it is very good. It's very much about democracy in motion. And so it's good that Nat Geo is getting it out before the election. Uh, it's it's meaty, substantive, real unscripted programming. So that's good. Um, the other stuff, look, How To With John Wilson, you might not have heard of it. And it's also possible that you didn't hear of Nathan Fielder's Nathan For You, which many people loved. A lot of the same people from that Comedy Central show are involved with this. John Wilson is a, a quirky, strange, awkward New York documentarian. And How To With John Wilson is him going through the city he loves, answering questions as big or as small as how do you make small talk or how do you construct scaffolding or how do you make the perfect risotto? It is quirky and funny and odd, but it's also hugely emotional and ties in so well to the idea of New York and the city it was before 
COVID-19 hit in the spring. And I thought the first five episodes were good and quirky and emotional. The sixth episode is just dynamite and one of the best half hours I've watched this year. Um, and then last, and in this case, completely and totally least, uh, The Undoing on HBO is... Look, our, our colleague Ingu Kang called it a career low light for all involved. Um, I'm going to say that people involved have made lesser things um, in most cases, but it's best enjoyed as a kind of trashy, guilty pleasure thriller and not as any kind of quality prestige TV. And yet it's being treated as prestige TV by all involved. It's it's at times a little bit laughable in its plotting. And that doesn't change, though, the fact that Hugh Grant is very good as an unlikable, wealthy doctor who becomes possibly embroiled in a murder mystery and that Nicole Kidman is not very good. Also, it, it you know, looks good. Donald Sutherland is is fantastic. There, there are things to recommend it. Uh, but as a thriller, I, I would say it's kind of much more dumb than it should be. And uh, yeah, there, there are definitely better things to watch this weekend. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. Once again, we thank you so much for the large run of ratings and reviews on those various podcasting platforms. Trust us when we say it really does make a difference. And again, we are appreciative of it. But again, keep rating and reviewing us. If you wish to say hi to us or, you know, dispute anything we said or anything like that, we're always on Twitter and always happy to hear from you guys. And if you have substantive questions for future podcasts, mailbags, and whatnot, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Go Dodgers! <laughs> <laughs>